All right, guys. Uh, if you got your Bible, uh, find Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We're still in our series on the parables. We will be all year long. I hope that you're still, hope you're not growing weary with the parables. hope you're still thinking about them deeply. I know we've been in this series for quite some time, since the beginning of last semester, but there's a reason for that. It's because there's a lot of parables that Jesus told, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 of them. And uh, parables, just to rehash some things we said in the beginning, parables were clearly, obviously, with that many of them in the Gospels, uh, one of Jesus' favorite teaching methods. And there's a good reason for that. Um, Jesus' point in these parables was to give us a window into life with him, into life, what, what life would look like as we follow him, what life in his kingdom for a, one of his followers would look like, uh, even as we live in the midst of a different kingdom. And uh, he used parables because Jesus knew the power of stories. Uh, we still know that. Um, stories communicate better than almost anything else, any other way of communicating, save maybe music, with just, just a different variety of storytelling uh, music is. And so, like I've said since the beginning of this series, these parables, because stories are so powerful, these stories, these parables and stories are still important for us today because they still have the power that Jesus had in them the first time he told them to restory our lives, to restory us. Um, and because we're, like I said, when I said they, the parables give us a window into life in, in Jesus' kingdom looks like, even as we live in the midst of a different kingdom, they restory our lives because we're living in another culture that's constantly trying to story us in one way. And, um, and, 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 and without our even realizing it, our culture is cr- trying to provide a narrative to us, a narrative through which it wants us to see the world a certain way, desire certain things, um, understand everything around us. I've, I've made reference so many times to James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love. Uh, some of you hopefully have read it since I've mentioned it. Those of you who haven't yet read it are surely about to. But it's all about the importance of, that book is all about the importance of stories, what he calls liturgies. It's like we have a liturgy guy. I'm directing you in, into a certain end in if you think about we let God speak I'm directing you to let God speak to us first think about what he says confess our sins to him next listen to him assure us of our pardon again then we sing to him I mean that's the I'm directing you to that's a liturgy I've given you to direct your actions and like we live in a whole culture that while it may not outright say it it's doing the same thing to us um James K. A. Smith says in that book, cultural practices, and, and, and just think about how many things would fall into that category. I mean, like um, going to a coffee shop, going to a ball game, anything. Cultural practices are liturgies. Habit-forming, love-shaping rituals that get a hold of our hearts and aim our loves. And, and he says, you can use that anywhere. Go to a coffee shop, go to a ball game, go shopping. And he says, all of those things are intentionally trying to capture our loves and our imaginations with all sorts of liturgies, stories, that are loaded with a vision for what is the good life. To be immersed in those secular liturgies is to be habituated to long for what they promise. 
And they're, he says they're, they're loaded with an ultimate story about who we are and what we're here for. So we don't always realize that's happening, right? But it's happening all the time. That's the whole premise, by the way, of advertising, for them to, 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 to feed that to you and you don't even realize they've done it. Um, they're, they're, in advertising, they're not so much selling a product as they are selling a story that gets you to get the product. I mean, I got to think about it. Why else? Would I, I was thinking about um, commercials that I thought were just so strange. They kind of stick out like a sore thumb. Why would Lincoln cars need Matthew McConaughey in their commercials? Like, you remember those Matthew McConaughey Lincoln commercials? Like, they're weird. But it, I, I, I rewatched one of those. Here's what, here's what Matthew McConaughey said in one Lincoln, Lincoln car commercial. He said, and I quote, sometimes you got to go back and act, to actually move forward. I don't mean going back to reminisce or chase ghosts. I mean going back and seeing where you came from. Remembering, remember where you've been and how you got here. See where you're going. I know there are those who say you can't go back. Yes, you can. You just have to look at the right place. What in the world does that have to do with Lincoln cars? Not a thing. It wasn't supposed to. Like, but, it's, but it's, hey, Matthew McConaughey drives Lincoln cars. And, you know, evidently, because he drives that Lincoln car, he has a whole lot of stress-free life that just lets him think of stuff like that. And maybe that could be me, too. I'll go buy a Lincoln. Stories are everywhere. Like, stories are everywhere, and they're everywhere because they capture our attention and they communicate a message that we're going to remember um, for better and longer than if you just, hey, go buy a Lincoln, right? Um, Jesus understood the power of stories, and he told so many of them because he was providing the counter-narrative to the cultural narratives to even those who were hearing them the first time were swimming in. Same is true for us. So the parable we're going to consider tonight in Luke 12 is the parable of the rich fool. The parable of the rich fool. So if you found, um, and we're going to look at, we're going to make reference to a, a more extended passage here. We're not going to read the whole one tonight. We're just going to look at just the parable, read just the parable at the beginning here to help us turn our thoughts in the right direction. You find that parable beginning in verse 16. Uh, it runs through verse 21. Okay, so Jesus says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Lord, this, this passage and any other we make reference to is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, would you please give us eyes to see clearly and ears to hear clearly what Jesus is saying in this parable and the surrounding verses. Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you give us um, uh, hearts to embrace it and love it um, and wills to obey what Jesus admonishes us to do here? Would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying? Give me the help that I do need to teach. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, we're going we're gonna to look at the more extended passage here that actually begins in verse 13, uh, that continues all the way to verse 34, um, all of which is, is either setting the stage for this parable we just read or it's elaborating on it further. Uh, so as we think about it together, here's how I want us to break it down, how we're going to look at it if you're taking notes. Uh, in verse 13, we're going to think about what I'll call the wish. The wish in verse 13. A man, a man approaches Jesus with a request, with a desire, with a wish. And it, that's what prompts Jesus to tell them the parable we just read. So verse 13, the wish. Then having considered that, we're going to ask, uh, look, look at verses 14 to 21 at the warning that Jesus gives, not just to that one man, but to the whole crowd that had gathered, which would by implication include us. This warning is going to consist of a statement that Jesus makes just before the parable and then the parable itself, which we just read. So the wish and the warning, and then finally, before we finish, I don't want to miss or overlook. We won't be able to look at it very carefully, but verses 22 to 34, that whole passage, uh, I'm going to call the wisdom the wisdom in verses 22 to 34, the wisdom that Jesus gives as a counterpoint to the warning of the parable. If the parable is about a rich fool, then what is the way of wisdom? That's what he gives in 22 to 34. All right, so let's go back to the beginning and think together about the wish that prompted the parable in the first place. So it might be, if you're open to Luke 12, it might be helpful to go even a few verses before the beginning of our passage to see some of the groundwork that Luke had already laid before you even come to the, uh, the parable. Which, what I mean by that is look, look back earlier in, the par- early in the chapter at verse uh, 4. And uh, in verses 4 to 7, uh, Jesus says, <coughs> look at, think about the emphasis here. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends. By the way, when you're reading the Bible and you hear Jesus say, my friends, just, that's a, don't pass by that too quickly. Uh, that's, that's a cool thing, man, to hear the Lord Jesus saying, my friends. Um, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. That's such an interesting passage. In the span, verses 4 to 7, in that span of those few verses, we are told from Jesus whom to fear and that if we fear him, we have nothing to fear. That's what he says. He's like, don't fear these guys. Fear him. If you fear him, fear not. That's interesting to me. But as counterintuitive as that sounds, that's precisely the point of this section. Where we fix our focus determines whether our fear that results from that is enslaving or freeing. Um, Whether... Where we fix our focus determines whether our fear is a false and futile hope or it's a comforting assurance. Jesus in those verses is saying, if, if our focus is always fixed on earthly circumstances and earthly sources of help, earthly sources of safety and security, that will be an enslaving, false, and futile hope. That, that, 
that, uh, but if we, our, our focus, as he says in those verses, if our focus is fixed on the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus said, that's a fear that weakens all other fears. A fear that's a freeing and comforting assurance. Then, then when you come down a few more verses, he addresses what would be a natural response that um, there still are frightening circumstances. And Jesus mentions one in verses 8 through 12 that uh, his disciples would face as they bore witness to his name. They would be arrested and dragged before authorities. And even then, Jesus says in verse 11, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. The Holy Spirit would give help in that answer, in that hour. So Luke has just set us up with that thought as we come to the passage for our focus tonight. If our eyes are fixed in the right place, um, we have no reason to fear or be anxious. And we can walk through our days with the confident assurance of his provision for any circumstance. If you were reading straight through Luke, that's the idea that you would be considering when you come to verse 13, where we read, someone in the crowd said to him, that's to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And that's all the context you're given to this man and his request. We're not told explicitly the circumstances of his family that might help explain the, 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 the conflict with the inheritance, so we're left to guess. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, there were laws in the law of Moses about how to divide up inheritance among brothers or even among daughters if there were no sons in the family. And, and, and since we do know that this man came to Jesus, we know that he, this man who came to Jesus had a brother um, and that it was up to the other brother to divide the inheritance. So you can surmise from that that the man who came to Jesus was the younger brother, Right? Because if he was the older brother, he could just divide it, right? But he's the guy waiting on somebody to do something for him. So according to the law of Moses, in a situation like that, the division would be something like two-thirds to the firstborn, a third to the younger brother, right? And it, and it could be that this man who came to Jesus and says, tell my brother to do this, was well within his rights. Like, to receive that portion of his inheritance. And his older brother was in the wrong. We don't know. What we do know is that when this man came to Jesus, this was still the first thing on his mind. Uh, the money he was owed or that he thought he was owed. He was coming to this Jesus who to this point in the Gospel of Luke had already healed the sick and the lame. He had cleansed the unclean cast out demons, calmed a stormy sea, miraculously fed 5,000, raised a kid from the dead. And you know that stuff was making the rounds of the Galilean countryside, which is why in chapter 11, verse 29, it tells us the crowds were increasing. No duh. And wherever Jesus went, the crowds were there and getting bigger. And according to chapter 12, verse 13, the crowds were there too. And it's out of this ever-increasing crowd that this man steps forward and asks the Jesus who had done all of these things, make my brother give me my money. Now, I don't want to come down too hard on this man. I, I, I have no doubt every one of us have prayed um, prayers as seemingly misplaced at first glance as this one. 
very self-focused prayers. Like, um, it's, it's a real mercy to me that the Lord hasn't given me all that I've asked him for. It just is over the years. Like, I don't know if you've ever thought about that or feel, felt that. If you're going to read this passage autobiographically, I tell you all the time, if you read it autobiographically as if you were there, if you're going to read this passage autobiographically, uh, put yourself in the story to get a better sense of it, you're this guy. I'm this guy. Okay? We're not the ones on the crowd watching this guy ask this kind of thing. We're this guy asking this kind of thing. And if, if, if you want to say, oh, well, no, if you are in the crowd, then you're probably the guy in the crowd who's thinking, yeah, I wish you'd do that for me too. But as soon as Jesus hears this man's request, he replies in a way that I'm sure that this man was not expecting. He replies with a warning. And before we look at what that warning is, which includes the parable, I want to say one more thing about our surmised circumstance that led to the question. Remember, we surmised that this man was the younger of two brothers. And as per the law of Moses, he rightly had a portion of the inheritance coming to him. Like, it would have been right according to the law. Like, he had a case. Like, he didn't feel like he was asking Jesus to do anything that was wrong. It was like, in his heart and in his mind, it was like a justice issue. Like, he felt like somebody was not doing right by him. He, did, he didn't feel like it was a misplaced request. I mean, if the law of Moses talked about it, I'm sure he didn't feel wrong at all asking Jesus about it. And he could expect that Jesus, agreeing with the law of Moses, would agree with him, right? Of what was rightly his. And instead... He gets a warning, which is what we're about to see. He doesn't get the help that he was expecting, or at least in the way that he was expecting to get it, which was in the form of money. And all I, I, I say all this to say, how do you apply that to your situation? Even when we pray to the Lord and we ask the Lord things that we feel deeply in our bones like is the right thing to ask like you feel like it's a clear justice issue like it's a like you 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 have been wronged and you know it you know that you were in the right and you wronged and it's it's you you're asking the lord to right a wrong and then the lord doesn't grant what you asked um Sometimes he doesn't grant what you ask for. Even when you know it in your bones that it's right and it's the right thing to do, sometimes he doesn't give you what you ask because he knows more than you know. He knows more than you know. And he always answers the prayer we should have made instead of always the prayers we do make. Um, he, he always answers for our good even if we can't immediately see what that good is. But in this case, he tells the man and the crowd with him what the reason is. So having said that, let's think about the warning that he does give. After the man asked the question, he turns to him in verse 14, and he says, Man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? In other words, this isn't why I've come, Jesus is saying. But he doesn't ignore his request at all. No, he answers him. But what does he say in verse 15? And he said to them, notice he said, said to them. Now he's talking to everybody. 
which means he's talking to us too. And here's what he says in verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Some translations say be on guard against all kinds of greed. Now, there is another thread and you can jot some of these down if, if you're taking notes. Uh, there's another thread. If you had been reading the Gospel of Luke since the beginning, there's another thread that had been running throughout the Gospel of, of Luke in which it, it emphasizes Jesus knows people's thoughts. He knows people's thoughts. So you don't even have to, probably don't have to turn the page, but in chapter 11, verse 17, you can see there, he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, or before that, in chapter 9, verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Or before that, in chapter 7, verse 39 and 40, where in verse 39, a Pharisee thinks something to himself. He thinks something to himself. In verse 39, and in verse 40, Jesus answered him. He didn't say anything. He just thought it, and Jesus answered him. Or in chapter 6, verse 8, he knew their thoughts. In chapter 5, verse 22, he perceived their thoughts. In chapter 4, verse 23, he knew what they were thinking. Why do I belabor that point? Because in our passage in Luke 12, I think we see that sort of thing on display again. That while by the letter of the law, the man's request might have been fine, Jesus knew this man's heart better than he knew his own heart. And, and as well as our hearts. And he, he could see that this man's heart was also full of greed and covetousness, which incidentally Paul in Colossians 3, 5 calls idolatry. Jesus knew that this man, yeah, he had a case according to the law of Moses, but this man in his heart had already made an idol out of money and the security and the pleasure that money could give. So Jesus knew that even though this man had a case, Jesus knew that giving the man the money, the right, which he was in the rights to get, Jesus knew to give him the money would have done him greater in injury than withholding it from him, even though it, he was in his rights to get it. When we feel like we are wronged and we go to the Lord with our request, he doesn't always immediately avenge our wrong as we desire him to, and he could have a multitude of reasons for it, but they're all good ones. And not absent from any of them is his knowledge that there are still things in our hearts that answering the prayer in our way would make things worse. And he tells the crowds, and this greedy man, who is all of us, remember, he, he tells them the parable that we just read. And it's almost like Jesus, in this parable, um, you ever seen, you ever, anybody ever watched the movie It's a Wonderful Life at Christmas time? Yes, I love it. You know how, how um, Clarence, the angel, gives George like the what if, what if you'd never been born? It's like Jesus here gives this man the what if. What if you got the money? What if I gave you the money? And what if I give you what you want? And you remember the parable. Rich man bumper crop, and rather than generosity, I got more than I need, y'all have some. Rather than that, he wants all of it and more. 
interesting, um, Hendrickson points out that this word greed or covetousness literally means, in his words, the thirst of having more, always having more and more and still more. That's this man, and it's our tendency. Like, when you have, it's not our inclination to just be generous, but build bigger barns, bigger house, bigger yard, better cars, bigger, better, more. And notice the man's focus in the parable in verses 18 and 19. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, and he starts talking to himself in the second and third person, soul, still talking about himself, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. If Jesus gave this man and many of us what we desired all the time, we would idolize those things and trust them for our comfort and our good and our security and our happiness. And it would deceive us to think it could give it to us. And the man in the parable had the money. He had the goods. He thought he was good for many years, but God interrupted his plans and required his soul. And he never enjoyed another day of the things he trusted, which couldn't help him on that day. It's why God called the man a fool for such contented idolatry. It led him to a foolish life. We know from other places in Scripture that even in the, and even in the passage immediately following this parable, which we'll look at in just a second, having material possessions isn't in itself the problem. It's the posture of our heart as we have them. Um, that's the issue. Jesus didn't fault this man in the parable for having the goods. It was that he had them, what he did with them because of what was in his heart. He wasn't rich toward God. I'll get to that in just a second. But the foolishness of this man, uh, just wanting more and being happy with what he had, thinking, thinking, I've got what I've got on earth and it's good, it reminded me of something that John Piper said at a, at a passion conference in 2000, which he repeated in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. In 2000, long time ago, most of you weren't born in 2000. Some of you maybe. Chris was born. Were you born in 2000? Were you born in a 19-something? Okay, all right. Anyway, congratulations. Um, in that, at that passion, that passion conference in 2000, he was pleading with my generation of college students, right? I was a, I was a sophomore in 2000. Um, he, he was pleading with my generation of college students in, that, in what he said, not to buy the American dream. Uh, not to believe the stories that are being sold to us that are trying to define who we are and what we should be about. And here's what he said. And you can read this in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, which you're also, I'm sure, about to read. He says, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I thought... Piper says, at first when I thought I 
when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, like a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today, he says, are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, don't buy it. Don't waste your life, end quote. That was a good admonition to my generation, but it hasn't weakened in its force to yours. The warning is real. This man asked Jesus for the money he was owed, and Jesus instead told him this very sobering parable, which tells us what? It tells me, when I read this, it tells me that behind this strong warning and behind this sober parable was the loving kindness of Jesus to not give this man what he was asking for. Like he spared this man, it seems, from his greed and from his covetousness, from growing stronger. Like Jesus, in other words, what we take from that is Jesus isn't just waiting to see what we do with our lives. Like he's not just waiting to see what we do with it and maybe we don't screw it up. No, this parable teaches us He's always working for our good to bring us safely along the way. And when we ask for stupid things, he doesn't give them so that we don't fall into traps when we trust him. And with that, let me just say a quick word about the wisdom that we see in the passage that follows immediately after the parable, and then we'll close. There's no way we have a proper time to, to really fine-tooth comb verses 22 to 34 uh, it's a, it's a lesson in itself. But I do think it's instructive to notice that this is the passage that follows on the heels of the parable. It's a passage that simply exhorts us to trust God more than our material possessions or our material capabilities um, or our earthly schemes and plans for our good and earthly security. He said, he, in that passage, he talks about the Lord cares for creation even when it doesn't actively seek him. How much more will he care for us who bear his image when we seek first his kingdom and trust his hand of provision over all else? What, what Jesus says in this passage is not, and, and not even what he says in the parable. It's not a warning against planning or having material possessions, but it's simply this, and I'll close with this. It's simply a, an admonition to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and with whatever material goods that the Lord sees fit to put into your hands, hold them loosely in an open hand. All right?
Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word, and I pray that you would help us to love you more than our things. <coughs> Lord, would you help us to love you more than our things, more than our stuff. Lord, help us to um, stay, stay faithfully in your word. Um, because we, can't just, we can't just assume that that's going to be the posture of our heart. We have to, we have to cultivate the ground of our hearts so that those, those seeds will grow. And so, Lord, would you help us to stay close to all the means of grace that you put in our path, in your word, in, in prayer. And not just in your word and prayer alone, but this beautiful church that you've made here at Lakeview, would you help us to cherish this and be with our flesh and blood brothers and sisters to know each other here in this building, in our missional community groups, on campus. Would you help us to read the Bible together, pray together, confess our sins together, um, spur each other on to love and good works. And, and, and we gather here on on Wednesdays, we gather here on Sundays to see baptisms take place, to, to, to take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, to give our offerings together, breaking the, the, the hold of, of uh, materialism in our hearts as we give our offerings. Lord, would we avail ourselves of all of these things, and as we do, would you give us grace to behold you more clearly, uh, that we would delight in you more than any other treasure here on earth, whatever that may be. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.